Good morning. Welcome to our 10 o'clock service. Uh, I am Pastor Stephen, the teaching pastor of Calvary Baptist Church. Uh, we are a Reformed Baptist confessional church located in Phillipsburg, Kansas, about 30 minutes south of the Nebraska-Kansas line in north-central Kansas. Uh, we are going through the Reformed Baptist Confession during our 10 a.m. worship service. Uh, we do not believe the Reformed Confessions are infallible or inerrant, but we do believe that the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession of Faith is the best summary of the important doctrines that are revealed in Scripture. So if you would come to our church and you would visit with us, and after some time you would ask us, what do you believe as a church? We would hand you the confessions. We would say, look this over, read through it, look at the corresponding scriptures that are attached to each uh, chapter and section of the confession, and then you'll have a good understanding of what we believe concerning the important doctrines of Scripture. That's how we view the confessions. We, we only believe that the confessions are a summary of what the Scripture teaches, but only the Scripture is the infallible, inerrant, sufficient, authoritative Word of God. Today, we are going to begin our discussion of chapter 5 of the Baptist Confession, uh, the chapter that deals with God's providence. Uh, look at section 1 of chapter 5. The confession reads, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. Lord willing, my plan is for us to spend several weeks studying the providence of God. Today, we will learn the nature of God's providence and how God's providence is separate. It's a separate worldview from the other worldviews, including the worldviews of chance, deism, and fatalism. If I have enough time this morning, I will also address the means by which God works out his providence in the world. What do I mean by means? Uh, what does God use? to bring about his providence. And then in the following weeks, 
Uh, I'm going to address the existence of sin and evil. I'm going to address the relationship of God's providence to unbelievers. Uh, how does God's providence relate to believers? How does God's providence uh, provide assurance and hope uh, that we have because of his providence? And so, Lord willing, we're going to be spending several weeks, uh, but today we're going to begin with the nature of God's providence. When we talk about God's providence, we're not talking about God's decrees. People, uh, unknowingly, you know, they don't do it on purpose, uh, they combine God's decrees and his providence into one doctrine. But they're not the same. They're separate. The confessions describe God's decrees and uh, his providence as two separate doctrines. Now, it doesn't mean that they're not related somehow because they are. They're related by God's sovereignty. But they're not the same. They're not the same. The reason why we confuse God's decrees and God's providence is because of God's sovereignty. Uh, several weeks ago, Pastor Chris defined God's eternal decrees as God's sovereign will, which he ordains and determines whatsoever comes to pass. And that is true. God's decrees are the things that he wills and the things that he determines that come to pass. But that's not the same as God's providence. God's providence describes his work of bringing about his decrees. Let's take, for example, uh, God's decree that he would send his son into the world. Sometime in eternity past, uh, according to God's foreknowledge, he determined that he would send his son into the world. That was God's decree. Nothing would change that. Nothing could alter that. Nothing could stop that. God's decree is that he would bring about his son in the world. Now, God's providence describes how that happened. How did God send his son into the world through the virgin birth or what is commonly known as the incarnation of Jesus Christ. According to scripture, in the perfect time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. The son of God was conceived in the virgin womb of Mary and he was born into this world. That's God's providence. God's decrees are what he determines, what he ordains, God's will. His providence describes how that will, how those decrees come about. To help us with understanding God's providence, uh, think of the terms care and oversight. By God's providence, he cares for all of his creation. He governs 
or exercises oversight of his creation. The confession describes God's care and oversight when it says God upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things. That's care. That's oversight. That's God's providence. Directing, upholding, arranging, and governing. Also notice that the confession says over the great and the least. Nothing is left out. God exercises oversight. God cares. He governs. He directs. He upholds. He arranges all parts of his creation. The least and the greatest. There are two examples in the Gospels where Jesus addresses God's providence over the least and the greatest. In Matthew chapter 6, in verses 25 through 33, uh, Jesus tells his disciples to not be anxious about anything. He says, don't be anxious about your life. Don't be anxious about what you are to eat. Don't be anxious about what you are to drink, what you are to wear. Because Jesus says, isn't your life more valuable than food? Isn't your body to me, doesn't your body have more value than just to wear clothes? Obviously, our bodies have more of a purpose for God than to just clothe us. And Jesus points to the birds of the air. He says, they neither sow nor reap. They don't gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And he says, by being anxious, you can't do anything to your life. Worrying about these things is not going to help. Jesus says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They do not toil. They do not spin. Yet even Solomon was not clothed better than these. Meaning God cares for the great as much as he does for the least. And Jesus says, oh, you of little faith. You of little faith. You that worry of where you're going to find food how you're going to find clothing, how you're going to find shelter. You of little faith, you don't know that God is going to take care of you. Do you think that you're not more valuable to God in his plan of redemption than a bird? Next in Matthew chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. Again, Jesus says, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. According to Jesus, God cares for the significant and the insignificant. And God's great plan of redemption and God's great plan of his sovereign will Sparrows and plants occupy a, a menial role. 
I mean, if you look at the grand scheme of redemption, plants and birds, what space do they occupy? Yet, because they belong to God, he cares for them. And the question is, since God cares for the insignificant, what about you and what about me? Humans who play a major role in God's redemptive plan. Wouldn't God care for us? Wouldn't he govern and uphold and direct and arrange the affairs of our lives? Jesus says, of course. It's so obvious that we shouldn't even question it. My favorite part about God's providence is how the Lord connects his design, the uh, design of creation, what he has made with the purpose, right? God's providence accomplishes the purpose for everything that he has made. The confession says, God directs, arranges, and governs all creatures to the purpose for which they were created. Whatever God wills for your life, that will will be accomplished. Whatever God has purpose for you, that purpose will come about. Nothing will alter it. Nothing can, can stop it. No one can reverse it. Because God's great power of providence is arranging, governing, guiding, directing, and upholding the purpose that he has for you to reach its end. And this is important because the scripture says the purpose, the ultimate purpose is good. That's not to say everything that happens is good, right? The Holocaust was not a good event. 9-11, that was not a good day. But God's purpose, the design, God's purpose of those events was good. And we'll talk more about this later when we address God's means of providence, what he uses to bring about his providence. But for now, we can rightly say that God's providence always leads to the praise of his glory. The end result's always good. The confession says God's providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. God is upholding, he is directing, he is disposing, he is governing all the affairs, all of creation in order to bring about and to display his glory in the world. And that not only is the essence of all of creation, that is also the essence of the confession. The essence and purpose of the confession is to display the glory of God in the world. The essence and the purpose of God's providence is to display his glory in the world. The essence and the purpose of God's decrees is to display his glory in all the world. 
in chapter one of the confessions. It says in the Holy Scriptures include everything essential for his own glory. In chapter two of the confession, it says concerning God and the Holy Trinity, God works all things according to the counsel of his own unchangeable and completely righteous will for his own glory. In chapter 3 of the Confessions, it says concerning God's decrees uh, that they are for the demonstration of his glory. In chapter 4 of the Confessions, it says God was pleased to create or make the world and all things in it, both visible and invisible, in a six-day period, and all very good, he did this to manifest the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness. And now in chapter 5 of the confession, it says God's providence leads us to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, his power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. That is the theme of God's being. That is the theme of God's essence. That is the theme of his decrees, creation, his providence, baptism, the Lord's Supper, marriage, the intermediate state, the last things, anything you want to discuss. The purpose of those things is to display God's glory in the world. For Christians, it isn't difficult for us to see that God's own glory is preeminent. In everything that God does, in all that God is, his purpose is to display his glory. God delights in his glory above all things. He places a greater value on his glory than he does on anything else. And God uses his providence in order to display that glory in the world. That means whatsoever comes to pass, both in triumph and tragedy, God's glory will be displayed in all the world. Before moving on um, to the other worldviews, uh, let's review God's providence. First, God's providence is the working out of his decrees. That's what God's providence is. It describes the working out of his decrees. The things that God wills, his providence brings them about. God's providence includes his care and oversight over all of his creation. God's providence extends to the least, to the insignificant, as well as to the greatest and as to the significant. God's providence guarantees that all things that come to pass will be for good. Not everything that happens will be good, but everything that comes to pass will end up being for good. Everything. Triumph and tragedy. And finally, the purpose of God's providence is to display his glory in the universe. What about the other worldviews? Since we believe in God's providence, we have to reject the other worldviews. I'm sure we all have heard non-Christians say everything happens for a reason. You've heard non-Christians say that. I've heard non-Christians say that. But 
what they mean by uh, everything happens for a reason is not the same thing that we mean when we say everything happens for a reason. They don't mean what the church means. When non-Christians say everything happens for a reason, they do not have the right worldview in mind. They do not have a biblical worldview in mind. For instance, when a Christian says everything happens for a reason, he typically means a blind and personal fate controls it. We don't know. We have no clue. We have to wait to the end. Uh, but whatever happens, we know there's a reason for it. Of course, that makes zero sense. Because if everything happens for a reason, an impersonal force can't be behind that. Someone must decide the reason for it. And so as Christians, we reject fatalism. We reject the term fate because we know that God works all things out according to the counsel of his will. We know that God has a specific plan and a specific purpose for everything that he has created. And God sees to it. He personally sees to it that whatever that purpose is for that particular creature, that purpose is accomplished for God's glory. Therefore, we reject fate. We reject the impersonal force. We also reject deism. Naturally, people who believe in fate must also believe and embrace deism. What is deism? Deism is the worldview that teaches God created the world, and then once he got everything started, God stepped back and then only watched to see how everything turns out. In a fatalistic worldview, all reality is impersonal, and impersonal forces is what brings about the purpose, which doesn't make sense. Deism is just as stupid. Deism teaches that God is impersonal, that he doesn't interfere with the events of human history. And that's not even close to what the Bible teaches. That's why I said it doesn't make any sense. That's why it's borderline stupid. Just a 15-minute reading of Scripture. 15 minutes. Anywhere you want to open up. I don't care. Pick Song of Solomon. I don't care. 15 minutes of reading any place in Scripture, and you must come to the conclusion that even after the Lord rested on the seventh day, of work of his creation, he continued to uphold the universe by the word of his power. Just a 15 minute, five minutes of reading through scripture and you can determine that God continues to preserve and govern his creation. Now, does God remain transcendent apart from his creation? Of course. If the world would cease to exist, God would remain because he's self-existent. He is not dependent upon any creature for his existence. 
Therefore, he's separate from us. We're not independent. We depend on God. So in that sense, God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. He is 100% involved in the affairs of his creation. And again, 15 minutes. 15 minutes of reading the scripture. That's all it would take to reach that conclusion. To believe in deism. To believe that God does not interfere in the affairs of his creation. You have to be illiterate. You have to. Or you have never read the scripture. Which one is it? These other worldviews like fatalism and deism, they teach whatever will be, will be. Que sera, sera. But that is not what the scripture teaches. The Bible teaches that although God has not revealed to us the future, right? God has not revealed to us the future. God certainly knows what waits for us. And we can be hopeful. It, we can have courage. We can be encouraged. We can have hope. We don't have to be anxious about it. Because even in the things that we don't know, God has determined them for our good and for his glory. And his providence will work that out. We are confident that not only does God determine everything for our good, but God's providence will accomplish it for us. He's actively working. Another worldview that's contrary to God's providence is chance. In Proverbs 16, 33, the scripture says, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Oftentimes when we talk about God's providence, we typically have in mind God's control over major things like natural disasters, elections of presidents or senators, kings. But the Bible teaches that God is in control even of the minor things. Even, even the small things like flipping a coin or rolling a dice, God controls that too. People in the scripture practice something similar to rolling a dice or flipping a coin. It was called casting lots. When a person uh, faced a, an important decision and they didn't know what choice to make, they took something that looked like a blank domino and they carved the choice in them. Then when they would take all the lots, the domino-like figures, and they would put them in the bag. They would shake it up. They would toss it out. And whichever lot was selected, that would be the choice. But according to scripture, the results of the casting of lots, the results of the roll of the dice, and even the flipping of a coin is ordained by God. Nothing is left up to chance. But let's think more closely about flipping a coin. Since God ordains all things that come to pass, and by his providence, the Lord governs, directs, and upholds and all things, 
that even the action of flipping a coin is controlled by the Lord. Think about it. The force that one uses to flip a coin. The choice of the coin, whether it be a penny, a dime, a nickel, a quarter, half dollar, whatever. The height of the flip, how far he flips it. The number of revolutions as it comes to the ground. Whether you flip a coin and it's windy outside and the wind blows it. Or you flip a coin near an AC vent and the vent blows. All those little things affect the outcome of that coin. And God uses every single one of those things in order to accomplish his purpose. That means that flipping a coin is really not a chance. It's a superstition. Now take that example and apply it to yourself. Since God pays attention even to the flipping of a coin and all that goes into it, and the outcome, heads or tails, is determined and ordained by God, all the variables that go into it, controlled by God, Such, such an insignificant, right? Wouldn't God pay much more attention to you? If the Lord is so concerned with something so menial as flipping a coin, wouldn't the Lord be more concerned with every aspect of your life? Isn't he just as involved with you as he is involved in the flipping of a coin? Or a sparrow? Or a lily of the field? Being able to have children, buying diapers, homeschooling, employment, losing relatives, death, relatives that are lost, all things about your life, both the great and the small, the significant and the insignificant, are all dependent upon God's providence. You are much more valuable to God and God's redemptive plan. You are much more valuable to him than a coin, than a sparrow, than a lily of the field. Of course, the value doesn't come from us. The value is found in God's purpose for us. God sustains you. He preserves you so that you can reach the purpose that God has intended and determined for you. We sang this this morning. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. That is the ultimate purpose for you. And God will govern, direct, preserve, and arrange your life to reach that end of you praising Christ face to face.